Today's guest is an architect, holds a PhD and a master in conservation and restoration of architectural heritage, and is an associate professor at the Department of Architectural Composition of the School of Architecture of the UPM in Madrid. His professional practice has been focused on traditional architecture and building techniques, and the restoration and study of diverse historic buildings and archaeological sites of multiple types and chronologies, mainly in Spain and Morocco. He is the executive director of the Richard A. Driehaus Initiatives in Spain and Portugal, member of the board of Terracidia NGO and vice chair of Intbau Spain. So without further ado, please welcome Dr. Alejandro Garcia Ermida. And we're live. So thank you, Alejandro, for, for joining today. I'm really happy that you're, that you're on. I hope you're doing well. Thank you very much, Ruben, for this invitation. I'm very honored to be here with you today. Thank you. So... First of all, a little bit about your background and yeah, your initial interest in architecture. So how and why did you initially gravitate towards traditional architecture and traditional building techniques and conservation? That's a very complex <laughs> question to answer, but because it's difficult to know exactly why, but I would say that something allowed me to discover traditional architecture and mm -hmm. this is related to having an interest to discover it first and that interest i think i must owe it to my family i would say i had i was blessed to grow up in a family where i could travel a lot have access to many books and there was an interest for craftsmanship too and for heritage for visiting historic cities and I grew up in one too. So I think that allowed me to survive the brainwash at the school, let's say. <laughs> and by the end of my studies, I was not fully transformed into someone thinking the opposite I used to think before about the city, about architecture, about construction and all that. So. Of course, you learn many things at the school, but at the same time, many things are imposed on you as a faith. And to resist that, and you yeah. must have some background, I think. Yeah. So then after the school, I do remember I was thinking maybe architecture is not my thing. And I was basically into heritage preservation and restoration and also surveying archaeological sites and analyzing the history of some sites. and. I was enjoying very much that, like historic construction, the way those buildings were built, the way they were, the structure, their structure work, and all that was very appealing for me. And at some point, I, I realized that uh, I really like that kind of architecture, even to practice it nowadays. And to come to that conclusion, it was instrumental mm -hmm. to meet some people. And those people were basically mainly Leon Kriet. Mm -hmm. I was lucky to decide to attend to a lecture by him in Madrid like yeah. 15 years ago or so. He was invited by a foundation, Fundación Barreiros, to, mm -hmm. to lecture about the um, sustainable city. And I went there I, and I discovered that he was his <laughs> ideas were more powerful even than I thought. And I was amazed by what I heard and I I suggested him to have an interview for mm -hmm. a magazine we have, we used, we used to have 
the School of Architecture by then, and that I was doing with a friend of mine, David Rivera, and the name of the magazine is Teatro Maritimo. And so we made this interview with Leon, and it was an entire day interview. We wow. had breakfast <laughs> together, we had lunch together. <laughs> it was a full day, and it was really amazing. And that, so that was one, yeah. for sure, that you, you may have some ideas, and, but you may think, I, I'm weird, or what's happening to me? Why do I like this kind of architecture and this kind of cities, and why, why I'm concerned mm -hmm. about this? And then you find that there are many people who have the same concern and are, to, and are actually doing that, but it's not that easy to find them. So no. you have to be lucky to find them, and many times it will be by chance. So because no one will promote that, or, or very little people will promote that openly, so you have to be lucky. And then also Paolo Marconi was very important. He came to lecture in Madrid. He was invited to a master in conservation that I was studying by then. That was before meeting Leonard. And, mm -hmm. and he was also very important. He talked about Imbau. He talked about traditional architecture, contemporary traditional architecture, and also about actual restoration of buildings, which is also a topic which can be controversial sometimes. Mm -hmm. And it was also very, very interesting to meet him. And then I was lucky too that Rafael Manzano won the Manzano Prize and, and that opened a new world for me of, of people who I could meet from that moment on. Basically, as I, as Leon knew me, he, they phoned me to ask me if I could organize something in Spain mm -hmm. in order to promote this new award that was going to be established. So I started working by then for Richard Drijos and all that. And, and that yeah. led me to meet many people who told me a number of things that I could have discovered, but not that easily, if not having this opportunity. It was also, and maybe I'm being too long, but it was also a key moment that I, Odunen wrote to me. I remember that through Facebook and said, well, well, I know some people who are interested in establishing a chapter of Inbau in Spain. It was Javier Zenicacelaya and Pablo Álvarez Funes. And, and he, it was Odun who get, got the three of us in touch. And we got in touch and we decided to try to put together an Inbau Spain chapter and, and it worked well too. And, and yeah. Yeah. So now there is, so could you give a little bit of background about Remio Rafael Manzano, like what the prize is and the organization and what it does? Yeah, this, this is Rafael Manzano Martos for New Traditional Architecture, that's the full name. Mm -hmm. And it was originally created after the Richard Drijos Prize for Classical and Traditional Architecture, the international mm -hmm. one. But it was addressed to architects practicing first in Spain and then Spain and Portugal in time. Mm -hmm practicing new traditional architecture. It could be new traditional architecture through urban design, through new projects, through also heritage preservation, where you have significant additions to existing buildings, because that, that's a large part of, of the architectural practice in Spain, the working in existing buildings. Yeah. And this prize started in 2012. It was the award for the first time and it's been going, it was first thanks to Richard Rijos through the University of Notre Dame. And then after that is well, still thanks to Richard Rijos through Indbau. Mm -hmm. and, and this has been growing and 
Yeah. Along in the Manzano Prize, I had the opportunity to keep suggesting other initiatives that would help with promoting traditional urbanism, architecture, and construction in Spain. And yeah. little by little, many other things grew from the very prize, like annual conferences, publications, exhibitions, yeah. competitions, awards for masters in building arts, grants to be trained with, with these masters, um, and the summer schools. Yeah, because you have a lot of, yeah, of course, you have the, sum, the summer school, which is tied to this organization. You also have a YouTube channel with a lot of presentations and, and yeah, informative videos. So, yeah, before we tell about, uh, yeah, no, actually, yeah, so the, the summer school program you organize with the, with the Rafael Manzano Prize organization, could you tell a bit about that? Because there's numerous summer schools now, one in Belgium, one at Utrecht. What does the... What does the, well, your summer school do, do differently? We started in 2013, I think, and this mm -hmm. summer school has been happening every summer, ever since. And it's been always in a different place of Spain and Porto. So this summer school is a nomad mm -hmm. summer school. <laughs> and this is also part of the program, actually, to have to, to deal with different places. Because the most important mm -hmm. thing in this summer school is learn from the place. And the very concept of the summer school is that. It's a, it's a two weeks program. The first week is fully devoted to study the place. And the second week is to design something departing from there. So yeah. the, the way the place is studied is that we draw a lot <laughs> and we invite also experts in the architecture and the construction of the place and the history of the place, the way it works. So it's a very immersive week. We draw a lot yeah. of streets, we draw elevations, we draw street sections, many details, building details. Also some craftsmen are invited to make some demonstrations of how things are done. And after all that, we build a kind of pattern book. So with this mm. pattern book, we design in the second week. Very informally, I mean, it, it's not really edited, pattern book by the end of the first week, but we have that. Yeah. We have yeah. all that, which is a big amount of information, which is available and we use it. And normally the project uses to be an urban project. It depends on the place. If it's more rural or more urban changes a lot, but the way we work is normally we have a master plan and we go into more details in particular places. It depends on what we have, but if we can develop everything, we develop everything in more detail. Yeah, And basically that's the way we work. We organize different groups and each group will, would work in a different part of the master plan. Yeah, Always having a coordination. So we have something co cohesive and coherent and by the end of the, of the work. And if it's a very small place where they need very little additions, it will be simpler. And if it's a place where you can add more, it will be a more complex plan. And maybe we go into less detail. We have a wide variety because the places have been very different. Sometimes have been big cities and sometimes they have been small, very, very small towns. Yeah. And, and the alumni from this summer school do some, have some already kind of become traditional architects or urbanists? They, we have people from many different backgrounds, many different countries, different ages. Mm -hmm. 
half of them used to be practitioners, half of them used to be students. We kind of force that a little bit in the way we select the candidates for the science school. We try to have a variety. So because that way people who were starting their studies will learn more from those who are more experienced. So I think it's more enriching, I think, for the group to have. Yeah. Because normally a participant would learn even more from other participants than from the faculty members. Yeah. yeah. So to have groups where you have a variety of people and one can teach the other and one can learn how the other draws something. I learn a lot, for instance, every, every summer school, I learn yeah. many, many things from so many. There are so many people doing things differently and they have their ways to do things that are very and so this is the way it works and some of them they i think most of them would keep an interest in traditional architecture after that yeah and some of them would do their best to practice it and i say do do their best because it's not easy as you yeah. know yeah there are not that many opportunities to practice traditional architecture yeah maybe connecting to that so how is the Spanish-speaking context right now on the front of traditional architecture and urbanism? What is happening at this moment? And how is the context also different from Northern European countries? What's happening there in, in the US, for example? Mm. This is a perspective. And may, there may be other perspectives. And probably yeah. one is more critical about their close environment. Yeah. And sees, sees more with more optimism, which is what is far away. But my feeling is that in, at least in, I would say Northern Europe, there is a more rooted tradition of more participatory approach to the city and people mm -hmm. have a say on what it is done or can have a say on what it is done. And that doesn't happen in the South, mm. speaking very broadly. So while there is clearly a movement of recovery of the traditional city, which have become like a civic movement in the Nordic countries. Mm -hmm. That is not that easy in the South, just because the tradition is different. It's just things are more, I would say, mm, top down or? Top down in a way, but it's also about clans, let's say. Mm, yeah. And so there are clans who have their parcels. And those parcels oh, yeah. are very compartmented. And you have to be in that yeah. clan to be able to. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah, more gatekeeping or something. Or Yeah, this is kind of, I would say, it's a little medieval. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But it, it is still there. I mean, this is under underlaying. It's not something officially happening, but yeah. it's there in a way. Like you are not of that group. And like citizens are not part of a group making a decision and won't be invited to that group. Yeah. yeah. Nor other people. <laughs> so <laughs> so I think feudal. Yeah, a little bit. This is still underlying. <laughs> yeah. It's a flavor of that. It's obviously yeah. Yeah. fully democratic processes yeah, for yeah. everything so yeah of course it's not feudal but it's uh, yeah it just has this little hint of it even though everything is now democratic it's more yeah you notice a bit little bit of the old ways in how it goes so what are they building now in 
in Spain and Portugal and what is going wrong? If you, if you leave any town and move into the new developments of the town, in any beautiful city, in the most amazing cities, you would go into a place no one would want to live in except for having or for being forced to do it because not being able to afford any other thing. So places yeah. which are, which no one will develop an attachment to them because they are not conceived to build a community. They are not conceived to enjoy the place, yet they, to, to enjoy the public life. The civic space has no value. Yeah. Really. And that's everywhere. It doesn't matter if it's a small town or a large town, every new development will share those qualities, except for full of exceptions, yeah. amazing ones, which are almost marvelous ones, like the places that don't agree build or all the things. But normally what you would find is very discouraging. And this is partly, it comes from very strong ideology from 60s and 70s is everywhere where there was this focus in, in development and on what it was called progress for the cities. And this was, I, I would say it was not different in Spain to other places, but at the same time, a little bit, it has some particularities because here we were by that time in a dictator city yeah. and we were, when compared to other countries of Europe, our cities were less modernized. So. It was promoted in a very quick way. It yep. was somehow promoted from the very state to happen very quickly. That doesn't make it different, but also just a little bit deeper, maybe the, the effort to, to, to get that change happen. So with that, I think everything came a little bit later. So we yeah. are still. We didn't have a totally bad urbanism, urbanism model in, in the big towns. You would find blocks and streets at least, but mm -hmm. they would be absolutely oversized, very repetitive with no like place, yeah. places where you will never want to cross the street and see your neighbor yeah. <laughs> at least walking. Yeah. So even it could be worse. It's not that yeah. bad, but it's not good either. Yeah. Yeah. Because there are some people, yeah, a lot of people nowadays are so focused on only density, like very, yeah, only looking at, at one dimension that is density because they see all these problems in their cities with too low densities and with, yeah, just, what is it? Uh, suburbanization so that they see, oh, Spanish cities, they're very compact, but then they lose sight of all the other qualities, which you also need in the, the city. Yeah, that's. Exactly what it happens It's like, and it, that's the way it's taught. I've been in, when I studied architecture, we used to have urbanism every year. What we were being taught, it was about numbers. So to get a good yeah. neighborhood, you will have to have this density. You will have to be, to have these square meters of that, the square meters of these. And that's like saying that I would, this has, needs to have 200 grams of this and yeah. 100 of that. But no, no, no one is explaining how it has to be cooked. <laughs> so, <laughs> so 
Yeah. So it, it's kind of the same. So then you may have the good numbers. So it's dense and all that. And you have a variety of, of functions, but they mm -hmm. don't work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's what's missing. It's something that I, f I found in the Netherlands, for instance, you yeah. have neighborhoods which are good, new neighborhoods mm -hmm. and yeah. are or good enough. And you have them in many towns and not only the famous new traditional yeah. um, towns, but also other ones which may be more modernist, but they still, they, they are good. And they have, okay. I mean, like these islands in Amsterdam, I don't remember the name, but th there are several neighborhoods also in, in Den Haag, you would mm -hmm. find neighborhoods which, which work or seem to work much better than in other places. Um, my feeling is that mm, there is a more weight yeah. uh, basis yeah. of urbanism there. Yeah. Yeah. It's of course also often more cycling and walking friendly because we always have a stoop or a place for people to walk. And of course, cycling infrastructure is just always integrated like it's just a part of every new place we build so that will already help a lot and i do think we have a the dutch yeah field of urbanism has been has been the study for a long time but yeah so and also i see a lot of n recent housing developments in the netherlands are have a tradition have a more traditional design like they use red brick and Nowadays, they're even getting more and more traditional, you could say, in a lot of cases, only not in the inner city districts. Like they are doing horrible things in the higher density places, but at the edges, it's often kind of okay. Although it also won't solve the housing crisis because it's often, yeah, they try to cramp a lot of houses in the same space. But yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I must say, I do think in the Netherlands, the quality is, is pretty okay. But I still see improvements. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Okay. And, and even one of the places that I've seen, a new neighborhood mm -hmm. that I've seen to work better when walking through it, it's, yeah. it's not in the Netherlands, but done by a Dutch architect. It was a Sluzeholmen in Copenhagen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it was rather good. I mean, it was one of the best new neighborhoods I've been walking through in the way it was working. Short suitors, so, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was trying not to pronounce the name. Just oh, yeah, not yeah. <laughs> it's a difficult name. Yeah, especially Schuert. It's a very, very Dutch name. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, and so I, I agree. So what are, before we maybe continue to the other question, what are biggest differences you see between Spanish new builds and those in Northern Europe, let's say Germany or the Netherlands? I think that just more openness to other things is more variety I would, mm -hmm. I would say that's what i i find yeah in northern europe which is not that much here is more difficult to to um, escape the mainstream way of doing the things here or what is just now the trend in how things are done yeah maybe there is less flexibility in the regulations too or maybe the regulations are better done in other places and allow for allow for more flexibility. Yeah. That so, might be the yeah. difference. It's not that much that I say that everything is better outside because it's not, but at least you find better examples more often. So mm -hmm. yeah. there is yeah. the opportunity to get there in an, at least 
more easily than here. Yeah. So continuing to the question about the journal. Yeah, the Journal of Traditional Building Architecture and Urbanism. How did you get to founding this and what's the story behind it? The story is the pandemic came. Mm -hmm. um, it provided the perfect moment to do to implement something that I, I was after for a long time, that it was to have a journal about this, where, where basically the idea behind it was that we need to have in a single publication, we need to have academic content and also professional content where you also gather not only the work of architects, but also the work of builders and master artisans doing different things. So it was the whole idea behind it. It was to break some barriers and connect things. Also, one very important thing for me in, in the mm -hmm. concept of the journal, it was that we need to have to do a journal which is not European center. Yeah. Um, that I'm trying hard. <laughs> we are trying <laughs> hard in the whole thing to do our best to, to have a, 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 like a good representation of the world, world's traditional building cultures. Yeah. Which is not that easy because there are many language barriers many times, but at least to do our best to be inclusive in those terms and try to find good examples in as many places as possible. We not all, always get it, but that's what we hmm. think. Yeah. What does the, what did the journal achieve so far? Kind of what of what kind of a change does it have? Did it bring yet? This this is it will be the fourth issue this year. Hmm. We're doing one issue a year. And I think is as you know, it's, it's not the only one. It's, there are other publications on traditional architecture, mm -hmm. like ANTA by the University of Notre Dame or the Classicist, or there are other publications. But I think this has a very particular identity, which is related to what I mentioned before. And, and what, I, what I think it has got is to, to have a place for that, where that can happen. And that's happening. Uh, we, it's true that in some manner, still, we have to struggle to, to get that variety, especially the geographic variety. And mm -hmm. um, I think with the moment when it's well enough known, when that happens naturally, and we yeah. get proposals from all over in a yeah. natural way, which is not that easy, because that would imply that it's known <laughs> everywhere, and that's yeah. not that easy. But yeah. Little by little, if you publish things by people from different countries, in those countries, they might have an easier access to the journal too. So I, I hope we arrive to that point. Yeah. So, and yeah, I can imagine it's also handy for, for students to have something to cite from like an, an extra source to research and to read, because yeah, if you don't have that many journals, yeah, it just adds to a body of literature, which is quite scarce, I believe, at the moment still. This is scarce and difficult to find. Uh, it's disrelated yeah. with, with what I was saying before, that you have to be lucky to discover traditional architecture too. too. Yeah. So yeah. to have journals where suddenly you can find many people practicing that and a number of examples together, I think that's a good thing. And that's why we do it open source online and we also publish on paper and we send it to 
schools of architecture to the, to their libraries. Obviously, we cannot cover <laughs> all the schools yeah. of architecture, so we yeah. send it to some schools of architecture. Yeah, and people would be surprised on how many schools of architecture wouldn't accept printed material. Yeah, nowadays, yeah. this is surprising too. Like more and more libraries don't even want any any yeah. books, especially if they are about traditional architecture. Some is that's not the common thing, but you might get replies like. We are focused only in like new materials and things like that. That yeah. may happen and has happened. Can you maybe explain why that is and how that came to be? Well, I think nowadays we tend to separate fields very, yeah. very commonly. And this is one more. It has developed like its own language, its own ways, its own theory and all that. And finally, it's all about the same. It's about building things which fit in a place and in a context. Yeah. And yeah. But like faculties, there's often that you see that they are keeping what is heritage and what is new built very strictly apart. Also art history and modern construction are separated very strictly. Well, in the past that might, yeah, there might've been more overspill, like before universities started teaching the modernist doctrine. Do you think that has anything to do with it? Yeah, I, I agree. It has to do. And actually the prevailing, I would say that the prevailing theory of, of on how to work on heritage would also promote this idea that you have to depart from the existing as much as possible and differentiate mm -hmm. yourself, like clashing yeah. with what is there. Yeah. Uh, and it all comes from this error in translation when they were translating from French to English the the Venice Charter. Oh yeah, the Venice Charter, yeah. And all that, and then when that wrong line there saying that instead of saying what they wanted to say that it was that any any addition, any contemporary addition, will you will be able to identify it because it's contemporary. It says that it must be contemporary. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. so, so that has that's been like the way to justify all kinds of horrors done in heritage all over the world that line there yeah. and when the people who wrote it noticed that that was a mistake it was too late people have signed the document already so oh, well, yeah. they couldn't go back and that's been the basis for many other <laughs> documents to come so it has perpetuated somehow this problem. And, and, and I think in time it won't, it will disappear this conceptual problem because more and more things are considered heritage because the more we destroy, the more we want to preserve. Yeah. And we are destroying so and spoiling so many things that many things are now heritage till the point that most of the landscapes will be heritage. So, any new construction will be heritage almost, almost we are almost yeah. there <laughs> so so yeah. finally it won't it will be like it was before like you will have to be careful because you are working in the existing independently of doing new work or restoration you are working in the existing and the, you must keep the existing values of the place and all that hopefully i hope it is that way yeah there are some Horrible examples, but but then if I look at the restoration efforts, for example, in Dresden, Germany, 
there they go a bit further into kind of recreating even though in the Frauenkirche you can clearly see what is new what is old but still there they go more towards rebuilding so it really depends on just what the people in the city want to do it seems and what their ideas are that was achieved because people reacted to what it was being yeah. planned and oh. the same for Frankfurt so it was a civic movement what which okay. led to that but if it had been led by conservation theory no none of that would have happened oh wow so happily there was a civic strong platform to to develop that yeah and in the case of Dresden, as far as I know, it was that civic platform that moved forward the whole process. And in the case of Frankfurt, it was also assumed by the very town at some point, but it came from the citizens. Yeah, yeah. So bottom up. Yeah. So maybe moving to another big topic, materials and building standards, because I think there are a lot of myths about traditional buildings and materials and techniques. And what are some of the greatest myths, in your opinion? The main myth is very clear, which is that no one can do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's the main myth. You would you would do something like you would design something, and you would be told how oh, no one can do this anymore. So it won't. <laughs> it will be fake because no one can do it, and it's not true. At least in our case, when we've been doing in Spain this directory of. of traditional building masters st still practicing different building trades in Spain, which we did precisely to prove that statement wrong. We were even surprised on how many people were there. We, we don't know. It's, it's, it's amazing how many very good structural carpenters are still practicing, how many very good brick vaults builders are still practicing nowadays. I mean, not people that know how to do it, but with people who are doing it and they are making a living out of it. So wow, yeah. it, that is being done enough to prove that it can be done. Uh, one thing that it's affordable. Second thing, some things of course are expensive in the building trades, but it's those things have always been expensive. Like it's always been expensive to have, I don't know, these carvings in gypsum in, on a wall. Of course, that was a luxury or things like that. It was always a luxury, but there are many other things which are not that expensive. And for instance, is in Spain at least, it's cheaper to do brick vault stair than doing it in concrete. Most buildings would have a stair in concrete, but it's more expensive. <laughs> so, so it's not even true that it's more expensive in some wow. cases. It's just that you are told it, it cannot be done anymore. <laughs> no one can do it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And yeah. And for the rest, because how often do you have to refute that? Or how often do you get this? Do you get this argument? Do you hear this and get confronted by it? Or is it? Yeah. If, if you are practicing in every time you do it, I would say in wow. a number of moments, you will have to confront that and say, no, let look, this person can do it. And as for a bit, you will see there is, you, you yeah. will even get some profit from this choice. Yeah. Wow. And of course it can be done. And, or 
you would be told, no, no, this system won't meet the regulations and the building code. So, mm-hmm. okay, calculate it and check. And maybe the building code sometimes imposes some crazy things and, and, and things that obviously stand and work are said not to work. But normally it, it will be proven that they work and, yeah. and they can be done with, according to the building code. Yeah, because building codes also, you now have a lot of energy efficiency codes. And, and what what about that? Is there a way to build traditionally and, yeah, avoid needing to use all these plastic insulators and everything? Uh, yeah, and still get kind of an affordable and good-looking end result. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. There are other options and there are options which are maybe not that traditional, but let's say at least more natural. Yeah, you have also cork, and you have all the things that can easily be used instead of plastic, and it's it's really more these regulations is very often they are very narrow in the way they look at sustainability, and and they in a way are also designed to promote all these gadgets and machinery mm-hmm. yeah. to get some very good performance in their terms, but they don't consider the consumption of energy or the waste that all that machinery that will be obsolete very quickly generate itself. So it yeah. it's a little bit the same as, as with urban regulations we were talking about before. It's more a mentality or an ideology that has come to be a code <laughs> and yeah. that code is outdated actually, but it's outdated because codes take long, a longer time to be developed and, and to reflect the current mentality. I think it will take time. Yeah. Do you think such a change is coming? I hope it's yeah. coming. <laughs> we will, we will have to change it. If we don't change yeah. it, maybe we are not here. <laughs> so, <laughs> So yeah. I, I, the only way to to go yeah. will will be to change some things, or or, or it won't be. So, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I hope so. And what, what do you think is needed to promote more use of craftsmanship and to to bring change? Like, how can we involve or make younger generations see the importance of craftsmanship and these? Yeah, the change of how we do things. I think the main the main responsibility and the main challenge is for practitioners is to try to, to, to reach that place just Mm -hmm. to try it because you will never get it. I mean, you will have to do many things in a more industrial way. You won't be able to do everything traditionally in any project, but if you have that goal, you will have, you will get part of it. And the more you do it, the more, the easier, the easier it is for everyone. So even if yeah. you go halfway, just because you have the goal, uh, yeah, that I think that moves forward a little by little and helps everyone. And uh, there's a good example here with the, with lime mortars. Some mm-hmm. years ago, it was almost impossible to get, to get lime mortars in Spain, at least for heritage preservation. Mm-hmm. Now everyone would use lime mortars and you would hardly ever find people going for Portland cement mortars in heritage preservation. Yeah. 
Yeah. Talking about traditional buildings. So that has changed and it has changed because there was a clear knowledge in the professional world among practitioners that that was better for masonry and stone masonry. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because once I, I knew of the existence of Portland mortar and the difference with lime mortar and what it causes, then you start seeing it everywhere <laughs> where you see suddenly these cracks and yeah, just... Yeah, just broken bricks and, and you see like the different color of the of the of the mortar and you see like ah that's one of those cases where they used the wrong one and you see the damage directly as well. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think the same as with that, it could happen with many things. It yeah. would take time as everything. But... Yeah. Yeah. How do we get change in universities? That's a very good question and very difficult to answer because I haven't, I've seen examples of success in this, like what they have done in the, in Kingston University, they have now a program and they got to do it within a school, which was not dedicated to traditional architecture, mm-hmm. but that's unusual. Normally it will be very difficult. Basically, because you would face the opposition of all those who would not want anything to change. So to change education from the system we have with, within the schools we currently have, I would say that it's not realistic. It's, this is my view. From my point of view, it's easier to establish a new school. <laughs> it's traditional architecture than try to change a program and go for traditional architecture. And there are cases of success in changing those programs and mm-hmm. schools which are now focused on traditional architecture, which were not before. But I don't think that's the easiest way to go. It's very complicated because you always have colleagues there who want, who will not want to go that way. And they are there and they will keep being there. Yeah. And even if you outnumbered and outnumbered there, then they will be there and there will be an opposition to that. And I, I don't think it's easy. No. So I think education may, may be an, one of another thing like regulations that go with some, even a decade of, of a decade behind of, of the ideas which are in this moment being like the, yeah. the leading force for our generation, I would say, or our current society. And it will take time for those ideas to go into the educational system and to be, to have a prevalence there. Also because the very, I don't know in other countries, that well, but I think it, that's in general in uh, ac- academy in general is very restrictive. Also, in the same manner we spoke before, like mm-hmm. you have groups yeah. which will retrofit themselves in a way, and they would go for people who share their ways of doing things and try to keep their school, let's say, their their way of acting, their way of doing, yeah. intact in yeah. time. So. Yeah. We are seeing things that are being taught now that maybe were taught in the same way decades ago. Yeah, because the funny thing is that they most architecture faculties will heavily focus on innovation and 
also say they're scientific, but the point is, yeah, what if innovation means that you start moving into the direction of using materials that have been proven, yeah, kind of a different way of of innovation, a different direction of innovation, instead of only going for novelty and technology going towards provably sustainable materials and provably long-lasting materials. It's kind of funny to me, at least, that they don't see how they're kind of internally contradicting themselves. And also, they, they say to be scientific, but if you look at science, if you look empirically, you see so many signs that traditional environments are better for human health and well-being and all that, all those things, that it's very weird that they insist on going the same direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. But in with materials, with urban form, with everything, with architecture yeah. and the, the, the way to conceive architecture, even still we are in an incredibly formalist way of teaching architecture, like what's your concept? Your concept is an abstract thing that comes from the out, outer world and lands on a city, and it doesn't matter. And that's still considered to be the way to educate on how to design a building, which is, at least for, for most people today, would be outdated. <laughs> but this yeah. is, that's still being taught. Yeah, yeah, I think that's... Uh... A nice thing to visualize as well, this abstract concept landing in the city and having completely no interaction with the actual reality of what is happening there, top down. Perhaps some other things about materials and what's, what are your some of your favorite projects you've worked on and what things that you find most inspiring to work on? What- this directory of traditional masters that I mentioned has been mm-hmm. one of the most educational opportunities I've had in my life because of how many things I've discovered and it has exposed me to many people with knowledge that I couldn't even imagine that it exists. And you, you talk to people who really have a very deep knowledge of a very particular thing that comes from generations ago and it's been developed over time till such a detail which is really astonishing. And it's such, that's, I think that's the most important heritage we should be preserving nowadays because yeah. it's, the, it's the one which is in, more in danger and we are about to lose it. And, and we cannot recover it by research. By research, we can get closer to what it was done. We can try to replicate what it was done but we cannot replicate generations of practice. That if yeah. every, every trade where the continuity is broken, I think we have lost a huge amount of, of knowledge, which is empiric, empirical, yeah. and which cannot easily be replaced by more scientific research. Because you, you now see some people trying to rediscover some some ancient traits which have been lost and it's always they start from scratch. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, is, yeah. Do you have examples of, of such types of craftsmanship? I was today with Will Turner. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, well yeah. 
he has a workshop in Toledo where he has two wilderness. And the race system, he had to sharpen on the tools, which is still stone wheel, which is with wow. an irrigation system coming with a pedal <laughs> just to cool the stone while you are sharpening the tools itself. It's like history of engineering. <laughs> yeah. And and that's still there. And it's still there. And this person is using a hundred different tools in his workshop or more, if they are all there, for a number of things that he only knows. <laughs> He's probably one of the maybe 12 people, or I don't know how many in the country, still know how to use each of those tools. And wow. And that will vanish with him and no one will follow his work. So yeah. I think he, he, this is a very clear example. And it was today that I was there because we were talking to him about doing an exhibition and being him one of the people whose work we would exhibit. And well, I was amazed about how many things like different compasses to get the diameter of something or to get the length and then to translate that to the piece that he's doing and all that. Just by the many tools, even tools that he has probably, or his ancestors have probably invented, like different squares and things to like to easily get to the central point of something. Yeah. If one of the listeners knows a billionaire who can maybe invest in capturing all these ancient types of craftsmanship, like film everything, put it in books, because I think that would be a nice project. It would be a nice he project. Yeah, keep it for eternity, although that's, of course, hard, but at least register it once. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. there, are there any books where such techniques are described, or is it really only learning by doing? I think there are books, but they are mainly books on by anthropologists and more yeah. about, like, the also not that much from the building process itself, like how things are done. So not that practical, not, I don't think there are many publications on how there are publications, but they are not common and not to the detail that you have very specific things for almost every town, I would say. So these things are not covered, I think, in publications, in research either. You will find good ones, but still will be partial things. I think video is a more powerful tool for this than books, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because video, I, I, I'm not sure if anyone would have tried to capture this because yeah, you could go to such a man and or a woman and with a camera and uh, yeah, spend there a week or something asking if he can explain all the tools. I'm not sure how many things are like secrets of the trade, but... Uh, that, yeah. that is still... It, I haven't found that in Spain, but I found that in Morocco yet. Yeah? The secret of the trade. <laughs> still nowadays I found it with a carpenter I took to him some pieces that I wanted him to replicate mm -hmm. if I took to him different mukarnas that I had at home and I I asked him like I want one piece of this and one of this and a friend of mine who was teaching very good professor of construction from the School of Architecture of Madrid had drawn these pieces so I I I told them these ones and these are the drawings. <laughs> and he was so upset to see the drawings. And he was saying, you shouldn't have those drawings. Who, who gave you those drawings? 
because you're not allowed to have this drug. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, he, he accepted to give to me part of the pieces, but there were three pieces that were not, he was not allowed to do for me because I had somehow broken the rule of having those drawings. And it was oh. like, he, he was feeling like he would reveal <laughs> too much. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, broken the trust with, yeah. <laughs> It's also kind of beautiful, but also, yeah, if there's enough people to, I, I think if you keep secrets of the trade, then there's probably enough other craftsmen doing it who could potentially steal it, mm -hmm. perhaps. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think that's because there you have many more people practicing yet. Yeah. If, yeah. if he had been a carpenter in Spain, he would have been like so happy to share his knowledge. Yeah. Knowing that not many people would follow even even if he wanted, he wouldn't easily get people to follow him. So so it's just a different moment in time. And what I was experienced seeing them there could have happened in any place in other countries much earlier. Yeah. It's it's yeah. it's amazing in Morocco, in the case of particular case of Morocco, how well they are keep their their trades and their craftsmanship and it's it's been always something like even from the very administration, they have promoted very much. Yeah. I hope that the summer schools and the sparse educations we do have can hopefully help spark some interest in the crafts. And I think Nadia from La Table Ronde is trying her best at doing that in Belgium. One of the very few, I mean, I'm not very well aware of, of course you have the university still teaching conservation, but like really the crafts, I'm not sure how often that is and how strongly that is promoted or still taught or educated. Not very much. We, we yeah. didn't recently had a meeting in Granada here in Spain with the center, the educational centers still teaching traditional building trades in Spain. And we got together around 10 centers still teaching some trade yeah um they all talked to this meeting was to share the problems everyone was having and also to share the challenges they were facing and all that and the picture they all presented together was rather hopeless lack of support from the administration total lack of also like legal frames like they don't have many of them they they train in a trade but the students don't get any official certificate well yeah um, it was very discouraging but the whole thing of putting that together was precisely to try to work together into trying to solve it yeah better than everyone trying to fight their own battle yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's at least, there's at least some constructive talks going on then. Yeah. Yeah, How? I think in, even yeah. In, at the European level, I would say too. You have many initiatives at the, uh, in the EU, EU now about identity. And from mm -hmm. identity, they go also to the intangible heritage, including the traits. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good thing, at least. I hope that the EU can also support the other directions of architecture, architecture, yeah, maybe architectural heritage or architectural tradition in some way. So, uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps the last topic, uh, modernism. Do you think, where do you think it's going? Is it, is it still going strong? Are there changes on the horizon? Is this whole, yeah, yeah. What, what's your view on it? I think such as an architectural movement is stuck in the past. So it is actually now over in a way, and it's just yeah. in a loop, yeah. repeating itself. Uh, but that's totally separate to what the common practice of architecture is, which is a rather generic thing. And it's not even yeah. related to modernism, I would say. No. It's something of its own, which is a mass production of something which is lacks any interest. And they, this modernism in this loop just adds to the mess because then the, the, the things here and there that could be interesting and stand out from that generic thing being built they are even worse and they complicate the thing and they don't add anything good to it, to that. They don't try to solve any problem, yeah. but they create more. So, <laughs> so they, this is generally speaking. And of course there are many, many cases where this, this is totally the opposite and there are very good projects everywhere too, but most of them wouldn't be. So the general practice wouldn't be good. So where is this going? Uh, I think this genetic way of doing the things is gaining ground and gaining ground. And there are less and less space even for modernism to, yeah. Yeah. to be practiced. So it's just the status quo of building regulations and cookie cutter uh, architecture, just building easily and out of habit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, this kind of development, which is fought out of doing things in a very comfortable way without thinking of anything in a special or dedicating too much thought to yeah. the aim of it, apart from profit, plain profit and quick profit, because it's not even profit really, yeah. because it, it could be more profitable if it's better designed, but <laughs> yeah. it's not even, that's even not considered. And I think, for instance, the work of Trece Architecten is a model mm -hmm. on how good quality traditional design can add profit to new developments and they can really be more, like, be wiser in market terms. Yeah. They prove it, but not many people know about that example either. Yeah. So Trece Architecten is the German firm which designs beautiful apartment buildings in Dusseldorf and many other places. But they do only the luxury part, but that's also probably their value proposition, right? They, Because they design so, well, let's say beautifully, they can ask so much more for their work. Yeah. And you would see you would see buildings which are built also high-end construction, which is awful and is not nice. And they do yeah. not really value by the design. And they do it. <laughs> and I think they yeah. get it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think their, their example is very good in those terms, like how even when it seems that this kind of genetic thing comes out from just thinking of profit, it's not just that, it's just because it's easier. And like everything, yeah. the regulations, the building codes, somehow that's the easiest response to them. 
Yeah, but but still, there there is also still this. It seems that that the the easy architecture is inspired by oh, you can just create clean lines and it will be okay anyway because this is just our aesthetic and we can make this with I don't know some green random panels on the side. It's easy to do, but it's also it kind of looks contemporary because it's very minimalist. So it's okay, that kind of architecture. Yeah, I think I think that's part of it. But even sometimes the most generic thing is to do some very complicated construction thing yeah. where you have uh, at the same time modern solution and then a traditional one superimposed just to make it look a little bit better when it's it becomes a kind of a Frankenstein with parts yeah. of traditional architecture and modernist architecture. Mm. But and but that may be quicker. Let's disguise this ugly thing with some traditional details, which are all obviously wrongly done because they are not even thought. And and that's everywhere. And you yeah. you go into any in, in the smallest town, you would find that. Yeah. And how, how is this also leading to less sustainable buildings? Like what are the things that hurt the longevity of these buildings the most in your opinion? For example, like how big is it of a problem that like, for example, using a lot of reinforced steel, like how long will it take to start to corrode or get bad and get dangerous even like after how many years, how many decades or centuries? And yeah, what other things in construction will deteriorate really quickly. Many things deteriorate very quickly nowadays in the way we build, but the basis of it, which is most buildings are built out of reinforced concrete structure. Yeah. According to the building code here, and I, I think probably other building codes in Europe are similar. Mm -hmm. Everything is, we design, everything we calculate is calculated to last 50 years. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and that's calculated from the time it will take the corrosion to, to start in the oh. steel. So we depart from something which structure will last 50 years in a, in a time when our mortgages are 30 years. So, yeah. so by the time you are finishing pain, <laughs> it's already going wrong. Yeah. And, and, and this is from the very way you calculate it. It's already done. So, because Portland cement is a long-lasting material, but reinforced concrete is not, because the those steel bars there, the closer they are to the surface, the quicker it will be that they will corrode, and especially when they are exposed. All these buildings with exposed concrete, yeah, because they look the aesthetics of the concrete that's also imposing on the building that it will last even less because they are more exposed. So the corrosion will be quicker. So they will need a lot of investment in 50 years. The thing with the reinforced concrete structure also is that when you rehabilitate it, when, when it, it starts to corrode and it starts cracking, you have to, in a way, replace it or redo it because you have to take the bars out or or add new bars. So you have to redo the structure. So it's not like yeah. you have a crack and you repair a part or you reinforce a piece of the foundation. No, you have to redo the full structure. 
Wow. So, yeah. So that makes it a very poor way of construct constructing uh, buildings and and yeah. Uh, apart from or departing from there, everything else is condemned. And are things that hang on that structure. <laughs> Um, yeah, all the glass and the steel and the the, the curtain walls and yeah, it's like a dress for that structure. But yeah. that dress is also weak. It's not really strong. Not it's not lasting. It's it's, it's very concept. This hung from the structure is yeah, man. But that is that is terrifying to think of because we built so much. So many of our modern building stock has been built out of reinforced concrete. You think in 50 years that will all be have to be replaced just the investment is incredible and also the impact on the on our environment but how many buildings have the bars of iron very near to the surface of the concrete that's what you calculate like when you calculate the structure where you place the bars mm -hmm. the distance to the surface that that number comes from the 50 years. So if it's done okay. according to the code, it's done in that manner. In the, in the best case scenario, you have been like more careful and you add more, so it will last longer and it will have all the other renderings and things that will protect it. But in the worst case scenario, which is not uncommon, the execution of that is not perfect. So in some points it will be closer to the surface. So yeah. actually it will last less than... <laughs> Oh, wow. So you could say that the ring of, of post-war buildings around almost all cities in all countries are kind of made of this crumbling, ticking time bomb made of reinforced concrete. And after 50 years or less, most of those buildings will start, well, yeah, corroding. Having cracks. And, Having yeah. cracks. It's not that they will collapse, but they will start to need attention. Yeah. And they kind of stand very long. Like in, you go to Havana and you see many buildings in concrete yeah. which are falling apart and they are still there. They stand. Yeah. But things are <laughs> falling apart. Yeah. And that will happen suddenly to a huge amount of, of, of buildings. Yeah. Yeah. Because we this have is... built a lot, as you say. It's, it's been, it, we have no, no other period in history where, where we have built so much. And yeah. What is the alternative, you think, to concrete? Can we open up all the stone quarries in Europe with massive EU funding or something and start mining massive amounts of stone and then just use uh, even, that? Or Even concrete, if, it's, if it works by form, let's say, if it mm. works, not depending on the bars, but if yeah. you work by form, it's not bad. I mean, it will be much yeah. longer lasting. But then you will need to think of Compression. And, yeah, exactly. And yeah. Bolts and arches. And yeah. Um, well, we, we'll have to, we're forced to make it beautiful again. Yeah. <laughs> kind of. Um, yeah. So the problem is to try to build something out of a material when you don't respect the laws of, of mechanics because you want to, you want to go beyond them. So, and that has a, that's, condemned to to failure at some point and then but yeah. some things we need to do them in, in reinforced concrete is is needed for many things like for very long spans sometimes or still mm -hmm. but sometimes we need it 
yeah. well it's yeah. true that with wood you can get amazing things too but it would be good to try to focus on doing in concrete what we need to do in concrete not to try to do everything in concrete yeah i think that's a very fascinating take to take along and i think that would be also very interesting for perhaps a separate podcast or video or something else because i think too little people are aware of this and i think it's shocking to to hear it like this because we we think uh in kind of very short time spans but if you think in a hundred years to see all those problems and all that i mean where are we going to get all the funds from to 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 fix all those buildings so yeah who knows right it's yeah. like the obsolete sense of, of architecture it's yeah um, probably we will not be able like we, we will have to live with decayed buildings and full of cracks and things and yeah. because we won't be able to afford to repair everything or i don't mm -hmm. know how we will be able to do it yeah yeah i think yeah before i think we're already over time but do you have some last nice yeah some some ideas or thoughts or links or whatever you want to share with the public it's a final remark whoever is the public yeah, anytime you have the chance to build something or to get someone to build something for you, try to do it traditionally because it will save you money. It will save you many headaches. It will make your life more pleasant <laughs> and also that of your neighbors and the people walking around. Every time you hear that that cannot be done it can but it's not easy to find it's not the easiest way no one will want to or many people won't will not want to to take complicated steps but you can force or push to to everyone like to go that way yeah wonderful thank you so much thanks to you a yeah. pleasure Thank you for listening to another episode of the Aesthetic City podcast. For more information about Alejandro's work, Inbouw Spain and Portugal, the Premio Rafael Manzano, Terra Kidia and the Driehaus Prize, check out the podcast description. If you like our content and want to support what we do, you can support us in various ways. The easiest way is to give this podcast a favorable review. Another way to support this podcast is to share it with colleagues and friends. You can also follow us on Twitter, subscribe to our YouTube channel or our Substack newsletter. And finally, the ultimate way to support The Aesthetic City is to become a patron. Find the Patreon link in the description. For more information about this platform, visit theaestheticcity.com. Thank you, until next time.